Mark 14, we're in verses 53 through 72. Open your Bibles, get to your device, navigate over there. The topic, Peter denies... Now, how does that happen suddenly? I don't know. Peter denies that he is a follower of Jesus, but the more he protests, the more his Galilean accent gives him away. The title of our message, Peter piped up provoking a personally perilous predicament. (laughs) Father, thanks for giving us this opportunity to, to study your word. And though we say it that way, Lord, though we think we're studying your word, it's something that's alive and powerful that is ministering to us, that is bringing us grace and showing us mercy and revealing Jesus Christ as if we were looking in a mirror and seeing him. It's intended to transform us and to conform us into his image. And so I pray, Lord, that we would get all of that out of the study this morning and realize, Lord, that... You are worthy to be praised, and we praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. He's Sean Connery, so we give him a pass. But it seems lazy to me that he didn't even try to use a Lithuanian accent when he played defecting submarine commander Marco Ramius in The Hunt for Red October. He spoke in his usual thick Scottish accent. It was just weird having a Scottish submarine captain on a Russian submarine that was defecting. Meryl Streep, on the other hand, is renowned for being able to nail just about any accent. To play the title role in Sophie's Choice, she not only mastered German and Polish accents, but she also learned Polish. She was so convincing in character that when she filmed on location, locals thought she was Polish. Now, the Apostle Peter needed an accent coach, He followed Jesus after the Lord was arrested, but he tried to keep his relationship to the Lord a secret. As he warmed himself by the fire, a servant girl thought she recognized him as one of Jesus' disciples. Peter denied it, but his thick accent gave him away. Hearing him talk, the crowd said, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Jesus warned Peter that he would deny the Lord three times before the rooster crowed twice. It happened just as the Lord predicted. Even though he had been arrested and was being tried by the authorities, that second crowing at the precise moment indicated that Jesus was the one presiding over the events of that morning. As we read through the verses, we'll focus on the Lord presiding both in the future and now. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus will preside over the future trial of those without faith. And number two, Jesus will preside, or does preside rather, over the fiery trials of your faith. Let's take a look first of all in verses 53 to 65 at the future trial of those without faith. Judge Wapner was the first reality TV judge that I can remember. There have been a bunch of them since Wapner, Judge Judy, Judge Joe Brown come to mind. Courtroom drama appeals to us on some level, as long as you're not one of the uh, (laughs) defendant, especially. The hours leading up to his crucifixion are filled with judges and courtroom drama for Jesus. Mark begins with his interrogation by the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And so verse 53, and as they... Uh, and, excuse me, and they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. 
Mark omits a few things that are not pertinent to his telling of the story. Jesus was first taken to a man named Annas. He was the former high priest and the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the current high priest. Then Jesus was interrogated as recorded by Mark here at an illegal night court of the Sanhedrin. After that, he was subjected to an official daylight trial by the Sanhedrin. Then he was sent to Pilate, who sent Jesus to Herod, who sent Jesus back to Pilate, where he was finally sentenced to death on the cross. Everything the Sanhedrin did was illegal. Their end game was to have Jesus crucified by the Romans, and they would bend or break both God's laws and the law of men to that end. Uh, Verse 54, but Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now we're going to pick up the story of Peter by the fire in just a moment. This is put here as a placeholder. Make a mental note of it, especially the fire. Verse 55, now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They were working backward from his sentencing to try to establish a crime worthy of the death penalty. It would prove impossible. Jesus was the sinless son of God without any fault. There was no cause for which he should even be on trial, let alone found guilty and condemned to death. You know, today a lot of people pre-sentence Jesus. They don't necessarily pre-sentence him to death. They pre-sentence him to insignificance. Without ever hearing testimony from witnesses, non-believers have decided Jesus can be ignored as someone who has no significance to them. You've encountered this if you've tried to share with somebody who doesn't want to hear you at all. They don't care about the Bible. They don't care about Jesus. They don't even care about the changes in your life. In fact, if your life changes for the better, they're kind of upset. They don't want to hear about it. Uh, And and so they've decided that Jesus can be ignored. They've pre-sentenced him to insignificance. Verse 56. Many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. If I understand Jewish law correctly, for a conviction, you needed the sworn testimony of at least two witnesses who were in absolute agreement. If a witness perjured himself, it was punishable as a crime. Jesus' case ought to have been thrown out of court for lack of evidence. There were no witnesses that agreed. If the stakes weren't so high, these proceedings would have been somewhat comical. Verse 57, then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Now the second temple, sometimes called Herod's temple on account of King Herod's massive remodel project, it was the heart and soul of Jewish life. It was still under construction in Jesus' time. A rumor had grown that Jesus planned to destroy the temple, that he was some kind of terrorist with a plan to level the temple to the ground. The rumor was based on an erroneous understanding of something Jesus had said. Asked by the Jews to give them a sign that he was their Messiah, Jesus said, and I quote, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then in the Gospel of John, the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. 
And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. They confused the temple in Jerusalem with the temple of his body, taking the words literally when Jesus was obviously using them as an illustration. Even accusing Jesus of being a terrorist, however, was failing because in verse 59, but not even then did their testimony agree. Right then, the witnesses ought to have themselves been accused and bound over for trial. It was a farce. The Sanhedrin wasn't very good at being very bad. They were sloppy and clumsy. It's just that they had a lot of power and they could do it. But they weren't very subtle about it and they hadn't thought this through. Seeing that they were getting nowhere fast, the high priest got involved. Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? The high priest, Caiaphas, must have realized that nothing any witnesses could say would be sufficient to convict Jesus. He tried to get Jesus to defend himself, hoping he would trip himself up in his own words. The witness testimony had been so obviously false that no rebuttal was necessary. Any answer Jesus gave would only have lent credibility to the lies as if there were some underlying truth. You know, just because somebody says something or accuses you doesn't mean you have to answer it, especially if it's absurd and, uh, you know, I mean, I like that phrase, I won't dignify that with an answer. Uh, We want to always defend ourselves, but uh, Jesus thought, well, this, you know, anybody looking at this can see how absurd this is. Why defend myself? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus adopted a sound of silence defense, represented by Simon and Garfunkel, I guess. But anyway, I I didn't know how that would go over. I figured it would bomb, but what else have I got to do? He refused to dignify their lives with the truth. Caiaphas had this one last strategy, get Jesus to commit blasphemy. He asked him directly if he claimed to be two characters. The first was the Christ. He was asking Jesus directly if he claimed to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, who was promised to the Jews throughout their scriptures. The second was son of the blessed. Now this seems a strange phrase to us, and it is, until we remember that the Jews would not utter the name of God. They therefore had catchphrases they substituted, and this was one of them. And so, out of reverence and holiness, they would never say the name of God. uh, And so they would have these phrases when they wanted to uh, delineate him. And so one of them was son of the blessed. Caiaphas was asking Jesus if he claimed to be equal with God. Under oath, in direct testimony, Jesus was asked, are you the Messiah equal with God, Jesus said, I am. Wow. Jesus used the very word designed, uh, used rather to identify himself to Moses at the burning bush when he said, I am who I am. He could not have made a clear declaration of his deity while veiled in humanity. Every now and then, some cult or some false teacher will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. This is a direct Uh, answer to the high priest who said, are you the Messiah? Are you equal with God? And Jesus said, I am. Not only he was admitting to it, he was using the name that he had given Moses at the burning bush. This is a strong statement of deity veiled in humanity. And Jesus said more. 
He didn't stop there. He said, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus didn't stop with his true identity. He applied it. Since he was the Messiah and very God himself, he would one day be sitting in judgment over them. Did the high priest understand Jesus? Well, you bet he did. Look at verse 63. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? Now, I hope for the sakes of them that the Jewish leaders had a uniform allowance. They were always tearing their clothes. Seems like when you're reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, every few minutes Jews are tearing their clothes. Whether it was the inner garment or the outer garment, I can't tell. But they were constantly doing it to punctuate things that were especially heinous, like blasphemy. Jesus' testimony canceled out the need for witnesses. He had condemned himself in their eyes by claiming to be equal with God. This whole scene is about Jesus claiming to be equal with God. Uh, That was his answer, and that clearly is how the Jews, uh, Caiaphas and the Jews understood it because of his reaction. Verse 64, you've heard the blasphemy, what do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Now it wasn't blasphemy because it was true. Jesus was their Messiah and God come in human flesh. His life and ministry proved the claim. Think of the mountains of evidence Jesus could have presented and the multitude of witnesses. This is a trial that would have never ended. You wouldn't have wanted jury duty when this was going on. I mean, think of it. All who had been healed of various diseases and conditions. Wow, that's a lot of people. Some who had been raised from the dead. He could have called upon demons to identify him. I call Azazel now to the stand. What? The demons knew who Jesus was. They were afraid of him. He commanded them and they did what he told them to do. He could have reminded them of John the Baptist announcing him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He could have played the tape of the Father's declaration from heaven, this is my beloved Son. That's just the tip of a huge iceberg of evidence Jesus could have mounted on his behalf. The Sanhedrin had long ago decided Jesus needed to be killed. It was more from jealousy than from any truly spiritual concern. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now this was not how the Sanhedrin did things on a normal basis. This is what we would call mob behavior. Everyone, including the officers, joined in against everything they stood for. It was ugly especially considering the pure and lovely life Jesus had lived openly before them. To say that Jesus didn't deserve this would be a a tremendous understatement. Jesus' prediction that he will preside in judgment is described for us in the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation. There we see the risen Lord step forward in heaven. He assumes a position of power and authority at the throne of God takes a scroll from out of his father's right hand. The scroll has seven seals. As Jesus breaks the seven seals, God's grace is revealed in wrath upon the earth for a period of seven years. We call it the tribulation or the great tribulation. 
technically the whole period of time is the tribulation and the last three and a half years are the great tribulation. After all the seven seals are opened and everyone on planet earth has heard the gospel, the heavens open to reveal Jesus Christ. He returns from his father's right hand and I quote, with the clouds of heaven. On the earth, the Lord sits in judgment over the survivors of the great tribulation. Believers who survive the great tribulation enter into the kingdom of God on earth in their human bodies. Non-believers are confined to Hades to await their final judgment. After the kingdom of God on earth, which lasts 1,000 years, Jesus will sit as judge presiding at the great white throne judgment. All the non-believers from all time will be sentenced and confined for eternity in the lake of fire, which is what we call hell. Then there will be the creation of a new earth and new heavens. Believers will go forward into eternity with the Lord in glorified, sinless bodies and bliss. Jesus is presiding over the future. It's a future which must and will come to pass exactly as it is written. The variable today is, what is your place in that future? That's the future. Nothing is going to alter it. We don't know exactly the timing of all these events. We do our prophecy updates. The rapture could happen at any minute. We think that probably the great tribulation or the tribulation will start sometime very soon after the rapture but we're not sure but it will start and if you read the revelation there's some indication there direct indication that once the tribulation starts it's on for seven years nothing is going to stop it nothing can halt it and so uh, the question is for everyone what is your place in that timeline where will you be at what judgment because Jesus is the judge and thankfully for most of us uh, that issue has been solved already because we've bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and accepted him as our savior but there may be some in this room today who have not done that who've not accepted Christ who've not asked him to forgive them their sins you're in the non-believer category and you're in trouble you need to come to Christ Now, secondly, Jesus presides over the fiery trials of your faith. This is in verses 66 through 72. We left Peter warming himself by the fire, and Mark will remind us that Peter was warming himself by the fire. And so there's an emphasis on Peter at the fire. I think it's a clue as to how we ought to approach Peter's denials. Fire and Peter in the same sentence reminds me of something Peter will write later in his first letter 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Peter's trouble at the fire that night, actually that morning, was certainly a fiery trial. The Lord told Peter it was coming. He told him he was headed for a trial. And the Lord promised that he could see Peter through it for Peter's good and for the good of other believers. So it meets the criteria of a trial. In the Gospel of Luke we read, this is from Luke 22, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, using Peter's older name, he said, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, 
The rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you even know me. The Lord let Peter in on a secret satanic strategy. Jesus helped Peter look behind the veil that was hiding the supernatural realm. You and I might say that the devil is tempting us or that Satan is the one behind our trials, but we don't really mean it's Satan himself. You know, sometimes, you know, people think, oh, God's got bigger things to do than worry about me. Well, that's not true because God is omnipresent and and he loves you and he's constantly with you and you can uh, count on his presence. Now, the devil, he's not omnipresent. He's in San Francisco. Now, I don't know. I don't know where he is. I don't know where he is. He's probably in Dubai. But anyway, um, where would I be if I was the devil? Who knows? Uh, not in Hanford, probably, I wouldn't think. But uh, he, so when we say, say he's, he's localized, and so when we're attacked, it's always by demons, underlings, that kind of a thing. But in Peter's case, it was Satan, the devil himself, who was bent on destroying Peter. Satan asked for Peter. It immediately reminds you of the opening chapters of what? The book of Job. Satan appears in heaven before God's throne and he asks for Job. He asks asks permission to test Job. And God permits it while limiting it and Job finds himself in a trial. I never thought of it before, but you could even say that Job's predicament was a fiery trial. He is described as sitting among ashes as he scrapes his boils with a potsherd. Most likely puts him in a dump where they burned garbage and human waste. And so, a fiery trial. Now, highlight this. Jesus promised Peter he would come through the fiery trial. He promised he would return to the Lord. Not only that, he promised that afterward he would be enabled to strengthen other believers on account of what he had endured and on account of how the fiery trial had affected him. Keep all that in mind as we take a fresh look at Peter's denials. Verse 66. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. You'll hear or you've heard in Bible studies that Peter followed Jesus from a distance and that that was the first step in his downfall. I can't remember exactly how it goes. There's, there's a, and it's a, it's a solid devotional study, I, I, I suppose, but I think I've probably taught it myself. You know, Peter follows from afar, then he warms himself by the world's fire, and, and it's it, it kind of a, a, you know, a one, two, three of how he uh, backslid and, and of his downfall. So they start by saying that Peter followed from a distance. I ask you, though, how else could he have followed except from a distance? I mean, how do you blame him from following it? To me, this would be like if somebody gets arrested, then you go up and say, "Um, Mr. Policeman, can I ride in the back seat? What? No, you can't ride. If you want to follow, you can follow, but you're not riding in the back seat. Most of the time, they won't even let you ride in an ambulance, right? Can I go with him? No, but you can follow us. And so so if Peter was going to follow Jesus, it was obviously going to be from a distance, Kudos to Peter, in danger as a disciple. And doubly so because he had assaulted the servant of the high priest. Peter nevertheless followed Jesus right into the courtyard of the high priest. Verse 67. One of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were there with Jesus of Nazareth. 
Jesus and his disciples had been very visible the previous few days. The activities of Jesus overturning the tables in the temple and teaching had made he and his posse the center of attention. We know from accounts in the Gospels that Peter was a big, burly, strong guy. Someone who might stand out a bit from the other disciples. When the disciples were having trouble pulling in a net, they said, Hey, Pete, you got to get over here. And, and that guy flexed out. And, and he pulled that net in. The servant girl calls the Lord Jesus of Nazareth. Apparently, the label Jesus was given among the servants of the high priest was this derogatory designation of where he had grown up. Obviously, there was a lot of talk about Jesus everywhere in Jerusalem. And certainly in the household of the high priest, there would be derogatory talk about Jesus. And so they would refer to him as Jesus of Nazareth. It's a reminder of that common saying, can anything good come out of Riverdale? I'm Nazareth. Anybody live in Riverdale anymore? See, it's no fun to make fun of Riverdale. What can I make fun of? Don't tell me. I'll get it later. Non-believers, if pressed, usually have some derogatory designation for who Jesus is. Have you ever thought about that? Oh, he was a prophet. He was a philosopher. He was a guru. He was a revolutionary. Considering that he was the sinless son of God, very God himself, all of those are insults. And so non-believers, they either relegate Jesus to insignificance or if they're pressed, they say, well, it seemed like he was, uh, you know, quite the philosopher or quite the teacher or whatever. No, he wasn't. He was God come in human flesh, their savior. Now, it's a mental line non-believers draw so they don't need to further examine the person and work of the savior. Because if you do examine him with an open mind and heart, the only conclusion you can arrive at from all the evidence is that he was exactly who he said he was, the great I am. That's where it leads, and it can lead nowhere else. Verse 68, but he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you're saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. This is Peter's way of saying, talk to the hand. He was trying to quickly and decisively dismiss the servant girl's observation. He says, I, I, don't, I have no comprehension about what you're talking about. The rooster crowing the first time isn't just an ominous warning. It was, or it could have been, a reminder to Peter that this was a fiery trial. And that he was being sifted as wheat by the devil. Jesus said, Peter, you're going to be in a trial. It's going to be like being sifted like wheat. And here's what's going to happen. The rooster's going to crow twice. And so Peter could have been, actually, I want to say, encouraged in one sense that Jesus was presiding over this situation. What Peter ought to have done at that point, I can't speculate. He could have left. After all, the Lord had told the 11 that after his arrest, they would what? Scatter. Why not scatter? As Jesus had predicted. Peter stayed and the thermostat on his fiery trial got turned up another notch. Verse 69, and the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by him, this is one of them. Hey, servant girl, do your parents know you're up this late? Or this early as, it's, as it would be? In his wildest imagination, I doubt Peter thought he'd be tripped up by a servant girl. Maybe warming himself by the fire, he was looking around thinking, is this an off-duty soldier? Is that guy from the temple police? I need to keep my, my head down. The next thing he knows, some servant girl is saying, hey, you're, you were with the Nazarene. You're one of them. In fact, the 
whole sword thing in Gethsemane makes for a good comparison here. Facing hundreds of trained armed men with an arrest warrant backed by the religious and civil authorities, Peter drew down on them and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Sure, it was foolish, but it was absolutely courageous. Uh, We said there could have been as many as 600 or more armed individuals with clubs and swords, and Peter is ready to take them on. Surrounded by a few civilians, Peter cowers in fear at the questioning of a servant girl. Trials are like that. You never know where they're going to strike you. Could be at some weak point in your life, in your walk with the Lord, but it could be where you think you are strong and where you least expect it. You know, you just want to hit people where they least expect it. And the devil is a master of doing that. But he denied it again, verse 70. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Now, the Galilee region was the home of Jesus during at least 30 years of his life. Much of the first three Gospels give an account of Jesus' public ministry in the province of Galilee, particularly in the towns of Nazareth, and Capernaum. After the death of Jesus, his disciples returned to Galilee and their experience of his resurrection took place there. Did Jesus speak with an accent being from Galilee? I mean, we think he spoke with a British accent, of course, because that's how he's portrayed in all of the really famous movies. Never a Bronx accent or a Boston. Could you just imagine Jesus with a Boston accent? That'd be great. He probably spoke with an accent. For sure, Peter was thick with a Galilean accent. He might be denying he knew Jesus, but his very denials were proving him false. The more he said, the deeper trouble he got into. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, this doesn't mean he cussed. He didn't cuss. He cursed, meaning he called down curses upon himself If he were lying. May God strike me dead. I don't know what he said exactly. But it's that kind of a thing. He swore that he did not know Jesus. Sadly Peter called Jesus this man. Are we sometimes hesitant to use the name of Jesus? To actually say Jesus? I I sometimes. I I admit that I sometimes feel a. A weird pressure when I'm out in some public forum as a chaplain for the fire department or for the Lamore Police Department. And they ask me to do an invocation or pray before something. And then I get to the end and it's like, are you going to pray in Jesus' name? Because you could just as easily say, thank you, almighty God, amen. And, and you'd be free of that kind of thing. But I find that it's important to say Jesus. I had a lady come up to me, a really sweet lady one time. At a function I prayed for, I was uh, in helping in the serving line, and uh, she came through. And she was she was chaplain. She goes, you you ought not use the name Jesus. You know, there's a lot of us that don't believe that Jesus was God. And I said, Well, I'm not one of them. <laughs> I said, Jesus is the name of my God, and so you know, if you, I didn't say this, but I want to say, when you pray, you can say whatever you want. But for me, it's Jesus, and and so um, it, it's it's interesting. So use use that name. That God is too generic unless you know, people don't know that Jesus is God and so that it's, it's interesting when you pray in Jesus name because then they get the idea that huh 
Gene thinks Jesus is God. That's revolutionary. That's different. Or I hate you. One of those two happens. But it's a good... So Peter says, I don't know this man. I think it's important we use his name. Verse 72, a second time the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. It was more than an accurate prediction of the future. I suggest it pointed further to Peter's future. Now we certainly get that in Luke's wording, which I quoted earlier. Luke makes it clear Peter will return, that he'll be restored, and that he'll be enabled to strengthen others. I think we can see that here too in Mark's gospel, even if it's just a glimpse. We need to go back a few verses and give the context in which Peter's denial played out. Uh, First, in verse 25, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Then in verse 28, he said, After I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. One more reminder before we apply this to Peter. The Lord had not been shy about telling his disciples one among them would betray him and be lost forever. So here's what I see. Peter had assurances that he was not the one who would be lost forever, but rather that he would see Jesus risen from the dead in Galilee and that he would be present in the far future at the celebration of the second coming of Jesus. This is all promised to Peter in these words. This restoration is what he might have thought about when it says he wept with tears that are obviously tears of repentance. Because he comes back to the Lord. Yes, Peter had denied the Lord as he was sifted by Satan. But after sifting, you're left with what you want. It's the chaff that is left behind. In the refiner's fire, if you want to use that metaphor, it's the impurities that are burned away, leaving you with that which is genuine and valuable. Peter's trial at the fire, his fiery trial, perfected him. Yes, he failed and for a moment seemed faithless. But when Peter was faithless, Jesus remained faithful and brought Peter through it to serve him. Peter was faithless, but Jesus was faithful. Do you ever fail miserably in your trials? I use myself as an example. I do. Do you ever go through a trial or even sometimes when you're in a trial and start looking back and you think, what was I thinking when I had that reaction or when I was complaining or when I blew it or whatever? And and you do, you you think, man, I want to go through that all over again because I see that what? The Lord has brought me through it. You're going to fail miserably in a lot of your trials. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that before. It's not... Maybe the most encouraging thing I have ever said, but most of us fail. And you know what's happening? Chaff is being revealed. Impurities are being revealed. What's important is that after you're faithless, you return to Jesus Christ because he is faithful. And that should encourage you. You have to fail at some level And it doesn't mean walking away from the Lord, but at some level, because you're not perfect, and it is a fiery trial to refine you. And you can't be refined without getting rid of impurities, and that's what you see when you're blowing it. 
when you're losing your joy, when you're blaming God, when you're getting angry, and all of however it is for you, that's what's happening. God is saying, hey, Satan is sifting you. You're being tried by the fire, but I am going to see you through this. I'm there with you. I'm faithful. What's important is that at the end of the trial, you're still walking with Jesus and that you acknowledge him. We need not fail, but when we do, we're not abandoned by God. Like Job, we can all say, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Do you ever listen for the rooster to crow, spiritually speaking? I think that in our trials, the Lord gives us signals that it's him at work. We should stop right then and repent before we get any deeper into it. Or we should just count it all joy that we're in the trial and not think it's some strange thing. But whether we do or go on to fail after hearing the second crowing, that risen Lord wants to see us again in our Galilee. Jesus says, you'll see me risen from the dead and we want to return to our understanding of his resurrection power in our lives. And he reminds us he will one day dine with us at his second coming. You and I have an invitation to that feast. Beloved, when you're faithless, he remains faithful. Let's pray.